You're listening to Radio Atlantic. I'm Claudine Abade. More than two weeks ago, Hurricane Fiona hit the island of Puerto Rico. This week, President Biden visited the Commonwealth pledging money and promising to restore the island's fragile power grid. Many Puerto Ricans have yet to recover from Hurricane Maria, which hit five years ago, calling into question how quickly recovery can actually happen. Jakira Diaz writes for The Atlantic. Her most recent article is Puerto Rico Needs Independence, Not Statehood. And she joins us today on Radio Atlantic. Jakira, thanks for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. You know, Hurricane Fiona hit Puerto Rico more than two weeks ago. Jakira, you flew in there shortly after. So tell me a little bit about what you saw. One of the reasons why I flew into Puerto Rico right after Hurricane Fiona is because I have family there. And um, during Hurricane Maria, I, we lost touch with a lot of our family, but especially um, my uncle, who lives now in Yabucoa and who is older. Um, we didn't hear anything about him for weeks and weeks. And I just thought this time I can't just sit around and wait for him to get in touch. And so I'm just going to get on a flight and go and try to help and, you know, take care of my family. You know, during Hurricane Maria, I felt so helpless watching everything on the news from the States. And I also did not know whether or not the help, like boxes of supplies that I was sending were actually going to get to my people. And so I thought, I'm just going to go. I flew in the Thursday after Hurricane Fiona. I flew in at night. And as soon as we're, you know, approaching Isla Verde, where the airport is, I'm, I'm looking at Puerto Rico from the sky in the dark and seeing that everything is dark except for San Juan, except for the hotels and casinos, the lights. And it's almost as if the hurricane happened to the rest of the archipelago and not San Juan. I was in the sky close to tears thinking there are tourists there now. There are people, wealthy people, foreigners and Americans who get tax breaks and use Puerto Rico as a tax haven. And they're not affected. They have power and they have water and they're partying. And there's a concert happening right now. While I don't know if my family is alive, how they're surviving. Um, And so it kind of filled me with rage and sadness because it feels like, I mean, during Maria, we know, we saw, we all saw the lack of response from the Trump administration, the deliberate blocking of relief funds. And then five years later, it feels like, you know, the wealthy people are still partying while the poor and the elderly and the people who live in rural towns are suffering and are ignored. Once I landed... I was privileged enough that I stayed in a hotel, that I could afford to stay in a hotel, and that I had power and water, and I rented a car, and I drove to Yabucoa to see my uncle. He was the first person I went to check on. He's a priest, and he was running the parish office on a small generator without air conditioning, without water, and still there because he felt like he needed to show up for his people. What can you tell me about how much, maybe even in particular where your uncle was living, um, how much the people that were living there were still dealing with the effects of Hurricane Maria from five years ago. Had they recovered from that at this point? Um, no, they haven't recovered. Um, my, my uncle at the time when Hurricane Maria struck Puerto Rico was living in Comerio, which is in the center of the island. 
Comerio was one of the hardest hit communities. It's a small town. Their bridges collapsed and their houses during Hurricane Maria, so a lot of them were destroyed and they were flooded and people were digging mud out of their living rooms and bedrooms and kitchens for weeks after. When I went, I want to say a year ago, the bridges were still not completely reconstructed. There was a bridge that, that was just like one lane where people were we're still waiting for construction to happen. It felt like everything was moving very, very slowly. I got a sense that people were still, in a way, living in survival mode. I mean, the Econo supermarket was open and um, the parish was open, but you can still see the destruction. You can still see the devastation in places like Comerio and the earthquakes. After Maria, in 2019, we had earthquakes hit Puerto Rico. They're still dealing with that, multiple disasters, not just this hurricane, Fiona. And there's a sense that not only that they've been ignored, but that whatever help comes is going to come too late. There may be another hurricane before they even actually see any kind of progress. While we're taping this, there's I think more than 100,000 people without power in Puerto Rico. But when, you know, Fiona hit the island initially, it knocked the Commonwealth off its power grid, which we should say is is pretty antiquated and is clearly not standing up to the hurricanes in the way that it needs to, or bouncing back, I guess I should say. And this week, President Biden, he headed to Puerto Rico and he had some promises as we conveyed to the governor, I'm ready to deploy and expedite more resources from the Department of Energy and other federal agencies, not just, I don't usually talk this fast, but it looks like it's moving quickly. To, to help transform the entire system so Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rican people can get clean, reliable, affordable power they need, and the power stays in homes and hospitals when storms like Fiona strike. That includes many grids which you can begin to deploy soon so we are less dependent on transmission lines across the long distances and more redundancy when the storms hit. The goal is lower energy bills and more reliable power for Puerto Rican households. Jakira, I wonder what goes through your mind when you hear President Biden talking about new modernized energy infrastructure for Puerto Rico. My feelings about anything that coming from any U.S. administration are complicated. Of course, the Puerto Rican people would welcome much needed funds and relief and any kind of help if it ever arrives. I didn't think the president would arrive, to be honest. Hurricane Fiona hit Puerto Rico more than two weeks ago. For me, I have very little confidence in this administration or any U.S. administration for that matter, considering that so many people in Puerto Rico have had to live in survival mode for so long. This is something that should have happened years ago. When I think of President Biden's remarks, I think of how long it took for this to happen, how long it took for Puerto Rico to get a waiver of the Jones Act. Time is of the essence when you're talking about people's survival. This was just performative to me. To people who have family living right now in survival mode, this feels like it's not enough. I feel like we should just let people know what the Jones Act is. Basically, they've given a waiver to this act that would not permit non-U.S tankers coming to the island. Is that right? 
Yes. Recently, there was a tanker full of diesel that was trying to d- deliver diesel to Puerto Rico. And the, the areas that didn't have power were running using generators, need diesel to power those generators, specifically hospitals, facilities for elder care that need generators in order to run, in order to take care of people. And so the Jones Act prevented that ship from delivering that diesel because the Jones Act makes makes it so that any deliveries have to be made to Puerto Rico from U.S. ships, from American ships built by the U.S., while hospitals are waiting for fuel to power their generators and can't perform surgeries or, or care for patients. It felt like that the administration was just taking its sweet time considering this. I hear your frustration and your skepticism, right, in in um, government help. But I'm also wondering, is it possible for Puerto Rico to modernize without government help? I don't know if it's possible at this point for Puerto Rico to actually rebuild without government help. And yet, They've been waiting for government help. I do think that the best thing for Puerto Rico is self-determination and eventually independence. But that also comes with a certain responsibility from the U.S. I think no matter the outcome, whether or not Puerto Rico gains independence, that the current relationship, Puerto Rico as a colony, is only causing more death and destruction for Puerto Rico. But, But it sounds like there's kind of like an order of operations that needs to happen. Yeah. It makes me wonder, like, when you think about Puerto Rico's vulnerability to hurricanes in this, especially in this particular moment, does it make you lean in further towards independence or does it give you pause? Um, It absolutely makes me feel like independence is necessary now more than ever. Um, But I also I I also want to emphasize that independencia, what we think of as independence and self-determination also needs to come with an extensive reparations agreement that is not just reparations for the harms done, but that is actually addressing the most immediate concerns of Puerto Ricans today, meaning getting aid and care to the people now, not in five years, not in 10 years, building hospitals in Vieques and Culebra, actually fixing the power grid now, liquidating the massive debt, and then starting to deal with the kinds of reparations that are addressing what has happened in Puerto Rico historically because of its colonial status. So if the promises that President Biden is making now and the money that he's promising for a stronger grid, modernization of the grid, infrastructure fixes to Puerto Rico, do you consider that in part reparations to the island? Absolutely. I I think it's much needed reparations. It wasn't just, you know, natural disasters or climate disasters. There's a direct relationship with the United States that is has prevented Puerto Rico from taking care of itself. And I mean, there are other things that the Jones Act causes in Puerto Rico, which is in part the debt and how anything that's shipped to Puerto Rico has to come through the U.S. before it gets to Puerto Rico. So it definitely, to me, feels like this debt that has prevented Puerto Rico from from getting relief and from actually seeing some progress has to be addressed. Some of those reparations right now have to come with addressing those most immediate concerns.
Robinson Meyer writes the newsletter The Weekly Planet for the Atlantic, focusing on climate change and climate policy. We're going to turn to him now to get more detail on what it would take to upgrade Puerto Rico's infrastructure, especially its power grid. Hi, Rob. Hey, thank you for having me. President Biden has talked about modernizing the grid. We hear this term a lot, and not just about Puerto Rico, right? We hear about making our power grids more resilient. What does modernizing a grid mean? It's kind of like modernizing like an IT system. It's like when you hear the president say it, there is a set of technological improvements, you know, new infrastructure to be built and cleaner energy to be added that kind of all fall into a bucket of modernizing the grid. And so when you hear about modernizing the grid, what it tends to mean is making the grid more resilient, more efficient, you know, less likely to go down during natural disasters and easier to repair when it does. Because I think one thing Fiona and and Maria both made clear is that when a hurricane comes through, it is not atypical for the tower to go down, right? I mean, in Florida this past week when Ian made landfall, millions of people in Florida lost power. The difference is that they then quickly regain power because linemen come from around the country or just the grid is built to be able to go back up after a disaster like that. It's very, very rare to have a natural disaster where days and days and days later, hundreds of thousands of people or tens of thousands of people are still losing power. When did conversations about modernizing the grid in Puerto Rico first start? I guess it's fair to say it, it's been an ongoing conversation. This isn't like brand new. It's not been, it's certainly not brand new since Fiona. And of course, it's been happening to some degree. There has been ongoing reform, mostly unsuccessful, of the Puerto Rican electrical system and, and who controls the grid. That This has been an ongoing theme, certainly since the, the large blackouts of Maria. But at the same time, a lot of the questions around the debt crisis that has been so destructive for the island's government and has led to pretty destructive regimes imposed by the U.S. federal government on the island have been related to kind of critical infrastructure debt. So it's it like in some ways precedes Maria. One of the things that President Biden talked about in reforming the power grid in Puerto Rico was what he called mini grids. They're usually called microgrids. Um, Rob, what is a microgrid and does it actually make sense for the island? So a microgrid is, uh, I mean, exactly what it sounds like, right? So it's a, you know, most of the electrical grid that Americans in the continental U.S. deal with every day is a macro grid, right? There's the power that we get in Washington, D.C. comes from all around us, comes from Virginia and West Virginia and Pennsylvania and New Jersey and and even as far south as Tennessee. And that's because there's giant infrastructure, giant transmission infrastructure that connects all those power plants to local transformers, which connect to our distribution lines and, and the power ultimately winds up at our house. Well, in some places, it doesn't make sense to run that transmission infrastructure over a long distance to get to then a relatively concentrated amount of electricity demand. What if you just could generate electricity on site and store it on site and then have a very small grid that serves just those local customers? And that way, too, if there is a disaster and you were to wipe out, there was damage in a fairly remote part of the transmission network. The electricity never passes that remote part. It's it's generated locally and it's used locally. Part of the technical challenge in Puerto Rico is that you do get transmission passing through fairly dense, you know, tropical vegetation, you know, hard to do maintenance on once you get there. If the technical issue alone was standing in the way of having a working grid in Puerto Rico, I think that would make a lot of sense. And I think it probably will ultimately be part of the mix that 
works in a kind of long-term sustainable basis for Puerto Rico. But of course, that's not the only reason that Puerto Rico has faced chronic underinvestment in its electricity system. And so, you know, you, you can fix some political problems with technology, but you can't fix them all. And, and chronic underinvestment is one of those problems that you, you're never going to get a better technology that lets you solve that that problem if you're not willing to spend on infrastructure or in the case of Puerto Rico, if you're completely unable to spend because of, you know, externally imposed debt upkeep requirements and debt payment requirements. And, you know, Biden has promised $700 million to Puerto Rico. Where is that money coming from the new climate bill? So there's a lot of different money that's on offer and, and, you know, the president mentioned some of it in his speech. So I think the biggest number he said was the 700 million number, which is for all Puerto Rican infrastructure. That is all mustered by the bipartisan infrastructure law, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. That's why the president, I think, could make that very big commitment is because, in fact, that money was committed the moment the law was signed. And the commitment, is it just a promise? And does the Biden administration have to follow through with committing this money? I should add that the $700 million that the president committed is all infrastructure spending. None of this has anything to do <laughs> with the electrical infrastructure problems that we're talking about. With the $60 million for coastal resilience that the president pledged, the, the Biden administration has the ability to spend that money. What we have not yet seen is any plan about how it's going to be spent or whether it would be reversible if it isn't spent during the current administration. So, you know, if, if the president loses in 2024, would a future administration be locked into spending that money? Or if, say, the White House has only or the, you know, federal agencies and the Puerto Rican government have only spent, let's say, 20 of that 60 million by 2024, is it possible that the remaining 40 million could be rescinded? Um, and I mean, so and let's talk about that. What are the yeah. what are the ramifications, right? Because I think for a state, there are political ramifications to doing something like that. But totally. What I have been thinking about is at the state level, when you have a chronically failing grid, even a grid that is perceived to be chronically failing, there are often political consequences that that ripple up to the national level. And so the the classic example here is that. In the early 2000s, California suffered from chronic blackouts and brownouts. And so 2003, the Republican Party in California led a successful recall effort against then-Governor Gray Davis, got him recalled and replaced with Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that's actually how Arnold Schwarzenegger became governor of California. And that had you know national political ramifications that California, a fairly blue state, was so fed up with the state of its electricity grid that it elected a Republican what we see time and time again is that if a state can't deliver, a U.S. state can't deliver a critical public service to such a large share of its citizens, there are counterexamples here. But by and large, if you just can't keep the lights on and you cannot bring the lights back on after a major storm, there are political ramifications and political consequences. What is so striking about Puerto Rico's situation is that it is restricted by its status and by its lack of representation in the, in the federal government in its in the current form, whether it, if it was independent, it would be the master of its own fate. But right, if in its current form, there's no way for these kinds of failures to ripple up. There's no lever in the same way that there would be if, say, you know, California had chronic power outages again, or let's say if Texas's grid kept failing in the same way that it failed um, early last year. Yeah. I, I also think that we have sort of gotten to a place with climate change that 
something that felt so far removed from our everyday like needs in life, the power grid, is something that is closer and closer to us, right? In a, in a real way. And for Puerto Ricans, I think that's been true for much longer. And because it is inherently in a place where it is getting pummeled more than other places when hurricanes come. And so it, this is, I feel like this is a hard conversation, right? Because we're having, there is a very like human everyday toll of this. And then there is this like very far removed utility yeah, I mean, conversation. I think, well, I think, right. Well, but this is, this is like always why the utility stuff is so hard is because like, look, we all interact with the electricity system every day. It is. I think you could say it's a human right to have electricity, that we deserve electricity at this point. We deserve it in the same way, you know, people deserve shelter and water, right? It is just a basic part of our lives. It is a basic part of the economic bill of rights that exists between the government and its people. Uh, unwritten, but nonetheless real. And yet, <laughs> the electricity system is a enormous, enormous mass of steel and copper and wire and highly technical systems that people who are mostly more expert than us with very technical degrees manage and, and run. And and so these are always the questions we run into when thinking about it. Um, how does this system that seems that's so warm that comes into all of our homes that we all rely on every day, but which also relies on really complicated physics around resistance and frankly, college-level electrical engineering, right? What is the proper way for a democracy to govern that kind of infrastructure and for us to think about it? Those are really challenging questions hmm. everywhere. What's so striking here, I think, is that Puerto Rico is not even given the, the democratic dignity to kind of resolve these questions on its own. At the end of the day, President Biden went home. You know, he went back to Washington after the trip and he may care a lot about Puerto Rico in that moment, but under its current status, right? Like it doesn't need a malevolent or nefarious story for the president to simply have many, many other obligations on his desk and many other priorities. And the ones that affect his job can rise to the top and determine what actually gets done. Robinson Meyer writes the newsletter, The Weekly Planet for The Atlantic. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. For Puerto Ricans, the long-hoped-for improvements to their power grid and the political wrangling that might somehow get the island to a more stable place all remain to be seen. In the meantime, two weeks after Hurricane Fiona, Jakira describes what people in Puerto Rico are doing to move forward. So one of the things that has always been true of Puerto Ricans is that when there's a natural disaster, when there's any disaster and any crisis, they rely on each other. Like they turn to their neighbors, they turn to friends and strangers, just people who live close by and that those are the people that they rely on. We saw that during Hurricane Maria. We're seeing that now, that there are a lot of local, small nonprofit mutual aid groups that are um, either taking donations to buy supplies for people or actually showing up at people's houses to deliver supplies, 
some of these are not even organizations. They're just, here are people in the neighborhood who are looking out for each other. Here are people who live in another town who have the luxury of having a car and will drive somewhere to make sure that people have help, who are going door to door just to check on people and say, is there anything you need? Do you need water? Do you need diesel? I think that's always been the case in Puerto Rico. One of the things that I saw myself is when I visited Jabucoa right after, in the four days after Hurricane Fiona, was that everybody in town, everybody, they all knew each other. They knew each other's names. They asked each other if they had power yet. They, they actually acted as if, whether or not they were strangers, by the way, they acted as if they were all in it together. And so part of, Part of what you feel when you go into these towns like Dabupoa, like Comerio, is that we're all taking care of each other because there is no government coming to take care of us. I was in a bakery trying to buy a coffee and they didn't have power and they were working with a, a generator. And there was a man who said he didn't have cash and he wanted to be to use his ATM. He said, I have money in the bank, but I just don't have cash. And a stranger came up and gave him a couple dollars so that he could buy something to eat. And to me, that is indicative of what's been happening in Puerto Rico since I've been alive, which is that the people are out there taking care of each other. That is very real. Shakira Diaz writes for The Atlantic. Her most recent article is Puerto Rico Needs Independence, Not Statehood. Shakira, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm Claudine Bade, and you've been listening to Radio Atlantic. This episode was produced by AC Valdez with help from Kevin Townsend. Our managing editor is Andrea Valdez. Adrian LaFrance is the executive editor of The Atlantic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>